This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. This episode is a special one as it was done remotely at the Gunnison Gut Check, created by Justin Miller and his incredible nonprofit, United We March. The Gunnison Gut Check is a challenging ruck through the desert landscape of central Utah. All proceeds go to veterans and first responder organizations. Operation Enduring Warrior is a fundamental element of the gut check, bringing OEW honorees who challenge themselves physically and mentally with the help of masked athletes and other members of Operation Enduring Warrior. Sadie Leish, former Air Force, and James Nance, former police officer, and also OEW honorees, share with us a slice of their stories, including why they are here at the Gunnison Gut Check. I am speaking with Sadie Leish, an Air Force veteran. This is her first time doing a podcast, and I am thrilled that she would sit down with me for a few minutes. We are at the Gunnison Gut Check with a wonderful organization, Operation Enduring Warrior, and we are just going to learn a little bit about Sadie and how she came across OEW. Sadie, thank you for being here. Sadie, when did you join the Air Force and why? Is that something you always wanted to do? Um, so I joined the Air Force in January of 2014. I officially stepped in in March of 2013 as a senior in high school. Joining the Air Force was kind of a childhood goal of mine. Both of my parents were in the Army. Um, both are retired Army. I went Air Force because I joined at 17 and my mom would not let me join the Army. Okay. So when she signed my contract, she said I either picked the Navy or I picked the Air Force. We went with the latter of the two. All right. You were in for five years. Yes, ma'am. How did you come across OEW or Operation Enduring Warrior? What were you struggling with? And feel free just to share what you want. I don't want you to share anything that you don't feel comfortable with. Um, so while I was serving, I was actually um, sexually assaulted. Um, and so I actually, um, I have PTSD from military sexual trauma and um at one point in my military career, I actually had um, thoughts of suicide. Um, and so after I separated uh, a few years down the road, I met a couple of the guys that I worked with um, who were members of OEW and they introduced me to the organization. And um, I mean, mostly because there's not a lot of women out here that are representing who we are and what we do and what we've risked and sacrificed. And so, um, yeah, I reached out to Adam Francis and uh, he, he kind of helped me get in. And you know what I'm finding, Sadie, is so this is my third year doing the podcast. And for some reason, it's mostly men that I have on my podcast. Imagine that, okay. right? <laughs> so I'm starting to have more women. But recently I spoke to a man. His name is Wiz Buckley. He's a naval aviator. And one of the things that we were talking about is that PTSD or PTS, whatever you want to call it, it's finally coming out in the forefront, but sexual trauma 
in the military is still a really dark secret and it's sad and it has to change because super common. women and men, not as common, but you are the one that is afraid of getting repercussion and not the person or people who did this to you. And it's awful mm -hmm. and it needs to change before this happened to you. Were you enjoying the Air Force? Did you like what you did? Were you proud of what you were doing? I, yeah, I absolutely loved my job. So I was a mental health technician and um, I loved helping people every day. You know, there's a select few of patients that would come in and they would only speak with me. And for me, that was touching. You know, I, I loved being there for them at all hours. I occasionally would stay at, you know, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., depending on which patients were coming in. Where were you stationed? Um, I was stationed at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. And when you left the Air Force, did you just not do another reenlistment because of the trauma that you had experienced? Like many others, I was actually separated. Um, I was kicked out of the Air Force. Um, so the second, I, I waited six months. So you, you got in trouble for speaking up. So your PTSD, did it come immediately or was it something that grew until um, it finally became overwhelming to you? So I was only 21. Immediately afterwards, I didn't tell anybody that it had even happened to me for Because you were worried. Is that why you were worried about what would happen? Um, yes and no. Um, being a mental health technician, it was actually really hard for us to seek treatment because working in mental health, it would have been a conflict of interest to receive treatment from anybody in, in a, a medical facility on base. You didn't confide in anyone. You just kept this all to yourself for six months. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely heartbreaking because that had to have just destroyed you. Yeah, I started drinking a lot, like most survivors of PTSD do, or traumatic events. Um, I also didn't tell anybody about how much I was drinking, but occasionally, you know, I'd go home on lunch and have to have a drink because I couldn't focus or function at work because things would come up. No one knew you were drinking or did anybody ask you about it? No. What was the breaking point that you finally decided, I need to tell someone? Um, it wasn't even my choice, actually. Um, I had a senior leader who I don't think was my biggest fan. Um, he berated me one day and he called me into his office and he started yelling at me because we had an incident happen in our clinic and um, one of our other airmen felt uncomfortable with it. And so I had been telling this other airman if he was uncomfortable with the things that were happening in the office to report them to either EO or to Sapper. Um, and uh, the senior leader thought that I was telling this airman to report it simply because I didn't like the supervisor that was doing things. Um, it was a female supervisor who would come up and she would just touch whoever she felt like, wherever she felt like. Um, and the airman who she happened to touch one night, one day, um, he was a gay airman and it made him feel incredibly uncomfortable that a female was touching him. So I told him to report it and my senior leader didn't like that. And so he kept berating me, telling me that I just didn't like her and making up all these things and just making me feel like a horrible person. And so I eventually just kind of, I was sitting in his office, um, in a chair, kind of like I am right now. And uh, I said, do you want to know why I feel so strongly about him reporting this? And he looked at me and he said, what? 
like just with no remorse, no feeling or emotion. And I said, I was raped six months ago. And he said, nope, no more. We're not talking about this anymore. He kicked me out of his office and said, go to the Sapper office because now you have to report unrestricted. Um, and so in the military, an unrestricted report means you no longer have your own personal rights. Um, basically, so everything you have, like any Sapper appointments, everybody knows about them. Why? Because you bring it to senior leaders instead of going and... They just don't it. want to hear it. They just kind of, yeah. So once you, once you unrestricted report, an investigation starts automatically. And so with an investigation starting, um, I couldn't secretly go to these appointments anymore. I had to go to these appointments and had to tell my leaders where I was at all times. Um, so I kind of lost a little bit of, a little bit of my privacy. And so everything was out there. Everybody knew this had happened to me. So with the investigation starting, um, they have what's called the SVC. And I don't know if it's branch-wide, but in the Air Force, it's the Special Victims Council. So it's a, a lawyer specifically tasked for sexual assaults type cases. Um, so I had to meet with him every couple of days and meet with my um, squadron commander for a monthly meeting. And so all these, all these things just started happening when I didn't have any intention of allowing that to happen. Got really overwhelming very fast. So you get out of the Air Force and what is life like for you? Um, so originally it was really, really hard. Um, so I was administratively separated um, with a general separation under honorable conditions. Um, so with that, I lost my GI Bill. I just don't understand that. I am so confused. And I had three days to separate. I was given three days to get out of the Air Force and figure out my life now as an adult. Okay, so what happens to the perpetrator? Uh, nothing happened. Um, his chain of command said that he is an outstanding airman and that he would have never done anything like that. And basically they accused me of lying. Um, I had, with you know the investigation process, I had to meet with OSI, which is the Office of Special Investigations. And, um, you know, I had to relive this moment um, over and over and over again as I had to tell them the story of where it happened, how it happened, what was happening, every vivid detail, you know, everything. And um, yeah, once they finished up that, they went to his leadership and uh, just left it under the rug. What year is this that you get out of the Air Force? Um, I got out in 2018. 2018. So it's 2018. I'm sure your PTSD is at an all-time high. No one believed you, so that makes you feel even worse because the people that are supposed to help you don't. Do things get worse for you? Um, so not, they got really bad after the process had started. Um, so I reported, so I was raped on August, or, uh, April 1st of 2017. Um, I reported it August or October 13th, same year. And um, over Thanksgiving that same year, I actually spent a week in an inpatient unit for suicidal ideations. <laughs> That's heartbreaking, and it's through no fault of your own. So how long after that did you run into OEW and Adam Francis? Um, probably about two years. Two years. And so are those two years just hell? Are you looking for help anywhere you can and you just can't find it? Um, well, so I mean, 
I go to the VA. Um, yeah. But the VA and yeah, <laughs> just you know, yeah. Um, the VA in Oklahoma City was not super great, and um, that my first experience with it. This is literally my first experience with the VA as soon as I get out. Um, and they put me in what's called CPT, cog- cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. and it's a group of people. And um, so CBT is for PTSD patients. It's just a giant group therapy. And I sit down at the table and we're all doing our introductions, you know, and it's all men. I'm the only female in there. And, um, you know, we're going through and I say, yeah, I'm Sadie. I was a mental health technician. And these crotchety old men look at me and they go, you are mental health. Can't you just fix yourself? And I'm like, Okay, so that was kind of a, another moment. I just shut down and I kept it in for another very long time. So, you have been with OEW then for how long? This is your first time as an honoree, correct? Yes. Oh, this how is cool is that? Year. Okay, all right. So, I've been with the organization for probably a year and a half, I think. And what have you been doing with the organization? Um, nothing really. It's been kind of hard to reach out like you know find events that I was able to make it to or Mm -hmm. just I have a a busy schedule what are you hoping to get out of this event um honestly I'm just happy to be here to be able to do it with these guys you know my my stuff's all in my head (laughs) but there are people out here that are physically incapable of doing things that I am able to and um, I'm super grateful for that. So let me finish off by asking you, what would you maybe tell a veteran who's experienced some of the things that you have? Do you feel hopeless now or do you feel like there's hope? Um, I know things get better. I found my passion in bodybuilding. Um, and so I have been competitive bodybuilding for a year and a half now. And um, that's really helped me cope and work through a lot of things just throw your headphones in and go hit the gym or do some cardio and it 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 really helps you fight your demons physical activity is something that i would recommend to anybody who has faced what i have i am here with mr james nance and he is going to share a little bit of his story so you were a police officer i was thank you for having me yeah i was a police officer with the stockton police department in northern california um, stocked in south, uh, just south of Sacramento. And how long were you a police officer? I was a police officer there. I came from another agency. I started with Stockton in 1999. Prior to that, I was with the Amador County Sheriff's Office. Did you enjoy being a police officer? Absolutely loved it. What did you love about it? You know, everything. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed all the all the things that every, let's say, little kid thinks about. I enjoyed the <laughs> uniform, the cars, the the driving fast to catch the bad guy, the running to catch the bad guy. And, you know, I, I, I think more than anything, I've, I've just always been a people person. And I think I just absolutely enjoyed, good or bad, just, just talking to different people every day. I enjoyed it. I have a question for you. I recently spoke to Alex Douglas, who is an OEW honoree, mm-hmm. and he was a police officer. And I ha- I'm wondering, with how policing has changed or how the public perceives. Yes. Yeah. Would I do it again? Yes. Would you, you do know, it today? Because I, it's changed. It's, it's scarier now, isn't I, it? It it is. I, I think I have I may have a different viewpoint than most. But uh 
you know, I, I truly think law enforcement or, or being a police officer or sheriff's deputy, I think it's a calling. And I don't think, uh, I, I don't think the current environment is going to stop anybody that wants to be in law enforcement from being in law enforcement. Would I do it again? I, I absolutely would. Would you be more afraid to pull somebody over? No, not at all. Not at all. If you're, if you're pulling them over for a, a legal justifiable reason, no. And I was, I say that having been a motor officer for, you know, a, a significant period of my career, right up to, you know, my accident was in 2018 and we'd already had the rollout of the, uh, the, uh, the body worn cameras. It, it never, even the body worn camera didn't bother me one bit, not a bit. 2018. 2018. What day was it? What it, was going on that day? It, and how did it happen? It was, it was, uh, it was August 28, 2018. It was at 1020. There's some discrepancy. I say 1025. <laughs> My wife very clearly remembers 1028. She probably is correct. She is probably, you know, as, <laughs> as, as usual. Yeah, I would, I, I would never say that she's not. Um, I was, I was pulling a car over. I turned my red and blue lights on. I was going through an intersection, very slow speed. And you were a motorcycle. And I was a motorcycle officer. So it is 1025 or 1028. Yes. Yes. Going through the, uh, going through an intersection. I had my, I had my red and blue lights on. I was pulling a car over for a traffic violation and I was heading, let's say, let's say I was going north. It was in an intersection and there was a car that was going eastbound and just didn't stop for the uh, red light. And I was hit on my left side and he was absolutely cooperative. He pulled right over after the collision. And I, I, I don't remember, you know, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what happened. I don't remember it. I didn't, I didn't, I don't have any memory until I woke up after a second surgery and I was in a ICU. How many days later was that? Or was that the next day? It was about, no, it was probably three or four days later. I don't remember. I don't remember the ambulance ride to the county hospital. I don't remember. I don't remember the, uh, the helicopter flight from the county hospital to the UC Davis, um, in the Sacramento area, UC Davis. Um, I had a, I had a surgery then I had a spinal stabilization surgery. I had a fractured T10 vertebrae. And then during the course of the collision, the impact caused my vertebrae to move and my spinal cord stayed in between the vertebrae when they came back to where they should have been. And I had a, I had a little burst injury to my, to my spinal cord. So when you wake up, do you realize where you are? I will. Yeah, I do. I, I can remember waking up. I woke up and, uh, there was a, there was a doctor or two in the room and my wife was in the room and I was in UC Davis's surgical intensive care unit and I was there for over 13 days. You find out you're paralyzed. Do you think life is over? No, you know. This How is, do you have such a good attitude? I well, never understand this when I'll, some of you have such a good attitude. I know, you like, I'll, just I'll, put me in the ground. I'm no, <laughs> I'll tell you. I, I, from the moment, from the moment I realized, you know, whenever I woke up and I realized what was going on, um, I was just so happy and thankful that I didn't suffer a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. Mm. Just, you know, being around, you know, uh, uh, victims of, you know, car accidents and stuff like that for an entire career, I know, I know, I knew that the uh, a TBI was going to have, a, it, it was going to be 
far, it was going to be a far reaching injury for everybody but me. Yeah. Right. Well, I think even to those that have TBI and they know they have the TBI, that's even more frustrating. Yes. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. No, I agree. And then I was, so I was happy I didn't have a TBI. And then I, you know, I was able to move all my upper body stuff around. So then I was just really happy that I was just a paraplegic, you know, that I still had everything else. I mean, there's, there's scales of misery, right? I mean, That's hilarious. There, there just is. I was just happy that everything above the waist worked, you're right. Yeah. So, so you're happy at least that everything above the waist. Uh, is yeah. Working. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have a TBI. I, I, I was just fortunately a paraplegic, um, you know, you gotta look at that. You gotta find the shiny side of it. So, and that was even in the hospital, but I had always been an optimist. Before the well, what led you to OEW then? Because it sounds like, and maybe I'm wrong, it sounds like that you're not really experiencing any mental duress. No, not really. I'll tell you what led me to, to OEW. I was still, so from UC Davis, I went to a, I went to a acute rehab at a Santa Clara, Santa Clara Valley Memorial that was in a San Jose. And I was there for three months. And while I was there, uh, Chris Jacobson from uh, OEW, he worked in the town neighboring Stockton. He was in Lodi, I was in Stockton. And uh, he reached out, he reached out while I was still, while I was still in the hospital. And, and at the time, OEW was primarily, you know, military. Right. And uh, he, he really wanted me to be the first, uh, first wheelchair law enforcement. Really? Yeah. Yeah. In in the, certainly Northern California. Yeah. I don't know where I'm at in overall picture, but I know I'm pretty close. (laughs) I was pretty close. You can claim that. Yeah. Yeah. So I got out of, I can tell you, I got out of the hospital in November 12th of 2018. I had torn my rotator cuff while I was in rehab. So they couldn't say I wasn't trying. Right. So I had rotator cuff surgery in January of 2019. And then my first event with OEW was April. And I did the Pat Tillman, the Pat Tillman event in Tempe. And you know, ever since then, it is just, they're such a great group of guys. And it's not always, I have found, it's not always, not always what other people can offer you. But you know, if you do have a good frame of mind, you can offer you can also offer that frame of mind to other people also so are you with oew because you want to push yourself physically to see what you're capable of and to form those connections it is it is certainly that but it's also it's also just to meet you know other great folks it is certainly to push myself physically because i can tell you at no point have I ever decided I was going to wake up and go for 16 miles in Gunners and Utah. Okay, let's on a talk. Trail, let's talk right? about that. How yeah. are you going to do that tomorrow? Just logistic wise, how will that work? I'm going to be in a grip. Okay. Right? Instead of rolling the wheels, I'm pushing the uh, I'm pushing the arms, and then when I get pooped out or I get stuck, of course I'm going to have OEW mask guys that are either going to pull me or push me. <laughs> Tell me. What lessons have you learned from OEW? Oh my goodness. Well, you, you, one's limitations are perceived limitations. They're not, they're probably not as serious as maybe one thinks, you know, especially when you got the right crew of folks that are behind you. 
pushing you or pulling you in my case, you know, depending how it goes. Probably, that's probably, I mean, that's the biggest one for me, really, because I didn't know how I was going to do in this wheelchair. And I mean, I've done things in this wheelchair that I, I certainly wouldn't have attempted or tried had it not been for the guys with OEW. And OEW is an organization. One last question. Yeah. What message do you want to leave for veterans and first responders who are struggling? I think a message that, you know, I would, I would always tend to, tend to rely on or tend to, tend to reflect on is, you know, there is, there are absolutely folks, no matter how bad your injury is or no matter, you know, what frame of mind you're in, there are people that are in worse frames of mind and there's people that have worse injuries. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 